All right, good evening, comrades, and welcome to the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. Tonight is February 16th, 2023. I want to thank you all for being here tonight. Uh, this class, as it was on Tuesday, is a continuation of the Peace and Solidarity Commission of the PCUSA's presentation on the multipolar world. Yeah, we're doing a continuation of last week's class. It's going into the uh, Middle East, Africa, and South America's role in the multipolar struggle that is currently taking place. I wanted to just say that covering three continents in one class is a lot of material, and unfortunately, we can't get to every single struggle or even every country in these regions, but uh, so I, I hope I do it the most justice as possible, but no, it's going to be sorely missing. So for my section on the Middle East, I'm going to talk briefly on Israel. I'm going to briefly talk about Arab nationalism and uh, its role in national liberation, the supposed war on terror, the Arab Spring, particularly in Egypt, Lebanon, and Syria. Saudi Arabia and its uh, proxy conflicts, and Iran's historical relationship with the West. Yes. So uh, next slide, please. Okay, so I just wanted to show people, um, you know, the countries that, you know, I'm going to be talking about are from Egypt over to um, Iran. Uh, we briefly talked about Afghanistan. Uh, last time I'll talk about it with the war on terror, but that's the range of it. Next slide. Okay, though an interesting history for the Middle East and for giving some context for the current situation in the Middle East, it is sufficient to say that the Ottoman Empire created a relative unity in Southeast Europe and Middle East from the 14th century until its dissolution in the early 20th century after World War I. From 1878 to the end of the First World War, the rapid decline of the Ottoman Empire was due to its imperial rivalries with the Western European powers and with the Russian Empire. After losing World War I alongside the German-led Central Powers, the lands of the former Ottoman Empire were divided up among the Triple Entente, particularly by the British Empire. Um, and here's just a map showing the decline of the Ottoman Empire or the 19th and early 20th century. Okay, next slide. With Israel, again, this is going to just be a brief outline. So in 1917, the Arthur Balfour of England issued the Balfour Declaration, which would lay the foundation for the creation of the British Mandate of Palestine. After the Great Depression, satisfaction without answers and the lack of organizing from the communists in Germany led the masses to the Nazi movement, which scapegoated Jewish people for the loss of the German Empire. The pogrom known as Kristallnacht, or Night of Broken Glass, as well as the systematic genocide of six million Jews and the mass exodus of millions more further intensified the Zionist sentiment in the Jewish European populations. In 1948, the British Mandate of Palestine formally ended. With the British out of Palestine, the State of Israel had free reign to expand into the previously Palestinian land. Though initially a refuge for the persecuted Jewish Europeans, the idea of Zionism would be taken advantage by Western imperialists in the pursuit of a loyal stronghold in the Middle East and the Suez Canal. Yeah, I think we should break there. That's already a lot. What was the territorial area like when Britain controlled Israel? Was it the same shape as what Israel is now or was in uh 1948? No, so the the territory that it's now, if you look on a current map of Israel slash Palestine, um, you'll see that there's small dots where Palestine's territory exists in now. But back in um, 1948, the UN um, chartered territory, which Palestine was a lot bigger, and it also had access to the Mediterranean. Now it's landlocked. 
So the territory is completely different from what it was back then. So just for the sake of the recording and for anybody who may not be as well versed on World War I history, could you please expand on what the Triple Entente was and uh, the role that they played in World War I? They were the bloc that contained the British Empire, the French Empire, and um, Italy early on the Russian Empire until 1917 with October Revolution. To add on to what's mentioned, so the British state and the British mandate of Palestine was territorially uh, what makes up the illegal state of Israel today, as well as Gaza Strip in Arabic, Alza, uh, as well as the West Bank and what is Jordan today, uh, called Transjordan at the time. So that was the entire British mandate of Palestine. Yeah. If that answers the comrade's question about what would you have seen on a map? Yeah, and I, I do want to say that, as I said, this, um, there's so much to go over in so little time that Israel deserves its own class. So that's why I couldn't get too in-depth with it. My question is, in relation to the uh, expansion of Israel, how would this uh, play into the development of the Arab Republic during, the, I think, the 16th War? Yeah, um, uh, that's a really good question. So you have to kind of understand, to answer this question, you kind of have to understand Palestine and its relation to the Muslim world and the Arab world as a whole. I mean, it's the thing that unites the entire Middle East. It is the one thing that unites us all, honestly, the way in which I view it. And um, see kind of what happens to the Palestinians. It brings out a sense of kind of pride of trying to help your people. It's because you want to see all of your homelands really strong. And uh, Nasser, in uh, his, I believe he was driven kind of a lot by that because, you know, it, Palestine is so close to uh to a lot of countries in that region, you know, Syria, Egypt, Iran. I hope I answered your question. Uh, first of all, I would like to add to, in addition to South, uh, South East Europe, uh, which were feudal expansionists under the Ottoman Empire, Eritrea was also controlled by uh, Turkey between 1515 to almost two, 300 years. But uh, most of the interests of Turkey in the Masawa region of Eritrea was the ivory trade. The ivory trade was a big, uh, big stuff at that time. So Turkey was mostly confined to the Masawa port city of Eritrea, but they didn't go to the highlands. Anytime they tried to go to the highlands of Eritrea, they uh, faced resistance and they always got defeated. So I would like to find out what the Southeast European regions were controlled by the, the, the Ottoman Empire. And uh, I would also like to to remark that the, the Israeli state is uh, essentially a Western uh, imperialist colonial state. They are not Palestinians. The majority of the people in power in the military, they are all of uh, Europeans. They are not even Jewish, but they claim because they speak Hebrew, they, they say they are uh, Hebrews. They are not Hebrews, they are Europeans. The only legitimacy in the region was a Palestinian state because it was under the, the British Empire. So I think only legitimacy belongs to the formation of a Palestinian state, not Israel. So I think that is a big, big challenge for history. Yeah, well, I, I do want to remind the comrades that um, in the early history of what is now Israel and Palestine, um, that the USSR did support the, the creation of the Israeli state as being a national liberation movement. Now, what was back then a national liberation is not what is currently going on in Israel. Israel, uh, after 1948, when the UN uh, chartered the territories, any expansion after that was completely against the will of the international community. I, I, there is a lot of conflict, and it's a very sensitive topic that I think would deserve its own class for the future. But I know uh, Angela wants to speak on this. Yeah, I wanted to mention that we got to go back to the beginning. 
many times we go in the middle of a book, we got to go back to the beginning. The beginning was Semites. What is the term Semite? It's a person that refers to people that were in that area at the time. That's why both Jews and Palestinians are considered Semitic people. They're more brothers than you would ever think. What has happened is that the native peoples that were there, who were Semites, after the temple was destroyed by the Romans, way back, when that was done, Jews were scattered around the world. So they moved to Poland, they moved to Russia, and their descendants became citizens of Germany, Russia, Poland. But they were the descendants. The original peoples all came from that area. Remember that. So I don't think we should spend more time here on this issue, except that British imperialism was responsible as communists, we have to understand British imperialism, which is capitalist imperialism, was responsible for what happened there originally. And the job of us communists at the time was to destroy imperialism of a capitalist nature from England. And that's why we supported the liberations of that colony from England. And that's why we as communists, and especially the Soviet Union, supported that movement. That's though we should be talking about how it affects British imperialism. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. And I don't want to spend too much time here because I know that we need to move on. But I did want to ask the question. I know that at the beginning of the state of Israel, communists and the Soviet Union uh, supported it because it basically was a punch that was hit British imperialism. But what I want to ask, and maybe this is deserving of its own class, and I think we should have it if it is, how do we reconcile that with what then happened with the Nakba? It was an immediate ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. It's not something that happened 50 years later. It happened within that own time, that time period. So how do we how do we reconcile those two things? I just want to answer, this is Angelo. It happened when the partition plan failed. That's when that happened, not before the partition plan failed. The partition plan would have created two states and people would have been in one state and they would have been in the other. That failed miserably and then the rest is history and i don't think we should go on tonight with that all right we'll go ahead and jump back to the presentation a little on uh, gamal abdul nasser uh, was very influential in the arab nationalist movement which led to the liberation of countries like syria egypt iraq and others so um Nasser led Egypt from 1956 to his death in 1970. Nasser's main goal was to unite the Arab world at the, you know, um, the Middle East and North Africa under a common language, cultural, and historical identity. Uh, Nasserism is sometimes called Arab socialism. The ideology adopts certain aspects of Marxism, such as the national liberation, anti-imperialism, and nationalization of key industries. It, however, rejects class struggle and the abolition of private ownership over the means of production. It also integrated principles of Islam while rejecting a sectarian state, i.e. sought to form a secular state in favor of a Muslim Sunni Shia Alawite Republic that encompasses the whole Arab world. Nasserism, as well as its related but competing ideology, Baathism, plays a strong role in national liberation movements in the region even today. So when we think of Baathists, we think of al-Bashar Assad of Syria as um, a part of the Baathist party. And here's a picture of uh, Gamal Abdul Nasser with Fidel Castro in New York, 1960. Okay, so then uh, we get into um, the Iranian National Liberation. Iranian National Liberation uh, sentiments became popular with the frustration against the Shah Mohammad Reza Pahlavi, 
who led the imperial state of Iran from 1941 to 1979, with a break in between um, when uh, Mossadegh took over. Um, under the Shah, Iran was a neo-colony dominated by British and U.S. petroleum interests. In 1951, Mohammad Mossadegh led a revolt against or a revolt which overthrew the Shah. The goal was to nationalize Iranian oil industry. Under Mossadegh, the Tudeh Party, the pro-Soviet Iranian Communist Party at the time, reached its apex and had great influence over society and politics. In 1953, that all ended when a CIA and MI6-backed coup overthrew the Mossadegh government. After the coup, the Shah was more authoritarian and cracked down on the Tudeh Party. In 1979, Iran underwent another revolution, this time overthrowing the Western-aligned Shah for the Islamic Republic of Iran under the Ayatollah Ruhollah Khomeini and succeeded by Ali Khamenei, who still leads Iran today. Here's just an image of during the 1979 revolution, hundreds of thousands of supporters of Khomeini and the Iran uh, revolution. Since the revolution of 1979, the U.S. and its allies continue to wage war against Iran, whether through economic sanctions, proxy wars such as the eight-year-long Iran-Iraq War of 1980, and also information wars. A year after the national liberation of Iran, the Iran-Iraq War broke out over the Shah al-Arab uh, River disputes. The war was initiated when the then CIA-friendly Saddam Hussein invaded Iran. The result of the war was an estimated 1 to 2 million dead on both sides and a combined cost of $1.2 trillion. This war was devastating to the new Iranian regime. Despite Iran's adherence to the Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action, aka the Iran nuclear deal, and the allowance of the International Atomic Energy Agency's surveillance of Iranian nuclear production, the U.S. backed out of the deal in 2018. To this day, the U.S. continues to sanction Iran and calls for tougher sanction despite the deal to lift sanctions with Iranian compliance with the JCPOA. And then comes the more recent history. In January 2020, tensions between the U.S. and Iran increased after the assassination of the Iranian general Qasim Soleimani by the U.S. during Soleimani's visit to Iraq. In 2021, a chain wave of protests that continued to this day began in Iran. In 2021, the protests were over economic hardship the country faced while under sanctions by the international community. In September 2022, protests broke out after the death of Masa Amini, who was detained by police. The protests started out as a legitimate frustration against the Iranian morality police, but immediately had the support of the U.S. State Department calling for demands for regime change and a return to the pre-1979 Shahdom. Um, unsurprisingly, these protests began and gained momentum just weeks after Russian President Putin and Iranian Ayatollah Khamenei met in Tehran to strengthen strategic alliances. Okay, so we'll break there. All right. Thank you, comrade. And before I go to these hands, one of the things I want to point out is on Iran, uh, there was actually a general in the United States by the name of Wes Clark that after the war on terror started, had actually revealed in 2007 that there was a plan that was handed down basically by the Pentagon that was an attack plan for seven countries in the Middle East. And basically it was Afghanistan, Iraq, Lebanon, Syria, Sudan and a, a couple others but it ended with the grand prize iran and so and for decades at least the last two but even more uh the war hawks in the u.s empire have had their eyes set on getting iran there used to be a slogan that uh, john mccain would sing bomb 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 iran 
And so we need to remember that when we see these kinds of protests and all this kind of propaganda about about Iran that's, you know, putting it in a negative light and, and pushing for regime change, whether indirectly or directly. So I just wanted to add that in there. It's very important to note the late Cold War strategy of the U.S. empire that was at play during this period. The U.S. empire sought to have anti-imperialists and socialists killing each other. This occurred in Afghanistan, where the Khalki and the Parcham, there was a division within the Afghan party that was exacerbated by external circumstances. This happened when anti-imperialists, um, the Islamic revolutionaries of Khomeini, were killing you know, the Arab Baathists of Saddam Hussein in the Iran-Iraq War. This happened in the Kampuchea War where followers of Pol Pot, backed by the Chinese communists, were killing Vietnamese communists and people who were anti-Pol Pot. This screams of late war, Henry Kissinger and uh, Zbigniew Brzezinski-esque policy. So we always have to keep in mind that the imperialists historically have tried to divide the anti-imperialist movement, and we see that to this day. Um, with them trying to divide the anti-imperialist movement along cultural grounds, along, along racial grounds. We see it with um, the U.S. trying to court Vietnam and use Vietnam as a proxy in Asia to contain China and to contain the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, we even saw it in Belarus for a little bit. And during the late Trump administration, it before the attempted coup d'etat in Belarus, you know, the U.S. was trying to court Lukashenko. 90 seconds. Lukashenko realized that it was just a color revolution attempt. All right. Thank you for that, comrade. Yeah, I just want to ask a question. It was briefly talked about about the two-day party, which is the Communist Party. What's the strength, if anyone knows, about that party as it, as it is today? I understand that the current Shah is uh, pretty repressive to that party. Uh, what's the strength of him now? That's all. Hey, um, that's a really good question. Sorry. This Sorry, I get excited when, when this stuff comes up. So, unfortunately, the Tudit party um, is exiled. And, uh, you know, the in the 80s, when the, when the revolution happened, uh, they were actually on the front lines, um, kind of in the, in the streets, kind of working along with the coalition of other forces, you know, Islamic socialists, Trotskyists, whatever. But basically, after the revolution, a lot of the leftist groups in Iran kind of started getting killed in the midst of the first year. It was uh, There was a lot of mass executions, and fortunately, the Tudor party is very shattered. It exists in the West. They still have an international secretary named Nadi Shomali, who's based out of Britain now, but they don't have what they once had. And unfortunately, you know, in Iranian society, the Marxists are not looked well upon. Uh, so, All right. Thank you for that, comrade. I guess this is a little bit of a question. Do you think that Marxists should work with, I guess, like maybe non-Marxist, like Islamic states? Like to me, I don't really see a huge problem with it, but I guess some other Marxists might. So I guess just wondering about that. Uh, so a good a good way to try to answer this question is by looking in history at what's happened. Um, a good example was the USSR's relationship with Afghanistan. We supported the Afghanistan government both before and after they had instituted a socialist republic. The Soviet Union was not on, was on good terms with the Afghan monarchy prior to them becoming a socialist republic. They were on good terms with them after they became a socialist republic. So that is a good example to. Look look at throughout history. They, they supported them and were friendly with them for a variety of reasons. But looking at history, the history of socialist states, there is no reason that Marxists cannot work with non-Marxist countries. All right. Thank you, comrade. As the chair of the Religious Affairs Commission and as a practicing Muslim, uh, I think we definitely should work with uh, Islamic countries and also non-Marxist, uh, at least progressive in the sense of defeating U.S. imperialist countries, uh, such as the Islamic State of Iran. You know, the Religious Affairs Commission is currently working on a book called Communism Religion, working for the betterment of humanity as a way to bridge the gap between religious movements and religious social movements, as well as communism. So I think that's definitely something we need to work on and think about more as a party and as Marxists. All right. Thank you, comrade. Hey, comrades. Yeah, 
Well, I'll speak on both of the questions. But the first question about the two-day party. So in our party's international dealings, we have dealt not so much with the two-day party, but with the forces around it. And previously, we had comrade who's very old comrade. She's in her mid to late 80s now, and she hasn't been active because she fell and broke her feet. But she is Iranian, and she was actually in the two-day party in the 50s and 60s. And she was, comrades, she's one of the leaders in our party back in California a couple years ago, but she's not active anymore. I think she's still alive, but she went to Iran recently. Um, she's actually very critical of the current Iranian government, unfortunately, but she and all of us have noted that the current two-day party is not the same two-day party, just like the CPUSA of today is not the same uh, CPUSA of yesteryear. And the two-day party today, as mentioned, does not really exist there, but exists in the West. And they march with CPUSA in New York. So we need to make note of that. Uh, but on the other question of working with Iran, as we said last week, judge people by what they do and not what they say. So judge Iran by what they do and not what they say. What has Iran done? It has supported Yemen. It has supported Syria, supported Russia. And for that, they have suffered. And the DPRK is working within Iran, by the way. Thank you. I just want to comment on the uh, question of whether or not we should work with non-communist or Islamic states. I want to answer that by saying this. Lenin and the Bolsheviks supported the emir of Afghanistan. The emir of Afghanistan was not a socialist by any means. He was a feudal monarch. However, the British imperialists were going up against him. And as communists, we are anti-imperialists, so we are supporting governments that are resisting imperialism. That's, that's what I wanted to say. Let me just put it this way. This is nothing new. Who is our greater enemy? That's the question on a worldwide scale. We joined together with all kinds of forces in World War II. Why? Who is the greater enemy? Fascism. Who is the greater enemy today? U.S. imperialism. I would go as far as to say that U.S. imperialism represents on a certain level, on a certain level, the fourth right. On a certain level, they represent the interests of the fourth right. I mean, Ukraine is a perfect example of that. So we cannot be ultra left. We have to take Lenin very carefully. He wrote a whole book on the ultra left. I haven't heard anybody here tonight mention that as if they're not a part of a problem. They are the main problem as far as I'm concerned on a lot of issues. The ultra left is the main problem on a lot of things. Where do you find the ultra left on the Ukraine? Let's be honest, where do you find them? You don't find them on our side, you don't. The, the king of the ultra left is anarchism. They are the king ideology. And anarchism is no friend of ours. Comrade Stalin made that very clear. They're not even part of our family. So the ultra left has to be fought just the way the ultra right has to be fought. Thank you. Uh, so the first thing I wanted to mention is that another important figure in the history of Arab nationalism, Islamic socialism, and anti-imperialism in Africa and the Middle East is Gaddafi. Uh, and I didn't hear him mentioned in this presentation. And so I think that that's somebody important who uh, warrants mention. Um, and another thing is that I'm sure that there are people in here who watch the Super Bowl who like football. Um, and during the Super Bowl, there was an advertisement which took advantage of the history of Pat Tillman. And so I think that we should all remember that Pat Tillman, he came out and called the occupation of Iraq by the U.S. effing illegal was killed by friendly fire. And then that friendly fire death was covered up by the Pentagon. Um, I just wanted to mention that due to the fact that the Super Bowl had just happened. And so I feel like that's relevant to this class and address uh, Gaddafi, who was murdered by NATO forces, not just murdered, but they brutally beat him, sodomized him with a bayonet and then shot him several times. That is how horrific the crimes of the U.S. imperialists against the people who resist them are. Um, so, yeah, as Comrade General Secretary had said, we really need to look at this in terms of uh, for anybody who's familiar with math, 
order of operations. It's kind of like a PEMDAS almost, where the foremost responsibility is to counter international imperialism because the foremost responsibility of each person within their respective nation is to fight the bourgeoisie of their own nation. It's very difficult to fight the bourgeoisie of your own nation when you have a foreign aggressor occupying your land. Um, and so particularly for those of us within the imperial core, our first priority, the primary contradiction we must address is imperialism, Two minutes. Uh, because that will further the goals of international revolution. And that does not mean we should neglect the struggle against our own capitalists. Uh, we can do both. You can do two things. Um, learn to multitask, basically. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I wanted to add a note to that. Uh, it's, it's very interesting to note that the country... Uh, that led a lot of the assault on Libya uh, in 2011 was Norway, uh, the country that just helped us uh, to sabotage the Nord Stream 2 pipeline. So NATO involvement in taking down uh, Middle Eastern countries as well. So, alrighty. Yes, comrade. So I'm going to add remarks about this subject of uh, our communist movement relationship with Muslim states. So we must support any state that if, is fighting against imperialism. That's a rule against colonialism, imperialism. They are fighting for national liberation. For that reason, we supported Gaddafi, Nasser, and uh, Khomeini in Iran, and all of this. Sadly, there is one problem. We supported them, but many times, they supported us at the end of a rope. Gaddafi hung many communists, so did Iran, and so did other countries. So we do our best, right? And it's, it's our mission, and uh, there's contradiction. It would be nice if they would understand as well and behave the way we behave, you know, and cooperate against the main enemy. By the way, Lenin uh, had uh, supported the anti-imperialist emir in uh, Turkmenistan and I think Kazakhstan and Kyrgyzstan and other places. Of course, at the same time, 90 seconds. When between Lenin and Stalin, you know, in those years in the late 20s, when they um, pushed for socialism in those countries in a certain degree, not extreme, uh, they were fought by emirs as well. There was a civil war in those states. In those SSRs, I mean. So, you know, there's contradictions. All right. Thank you, comrade. And we'll take one more hand. Yeah, so what did you say? PENDOS or something? What did uh, that PEMDOS. Mean? It's an idea within mathematics that refers to the order of operations within an equation. Okay, thanks. We can go ahead and continue the presentation. Not going to do this full justice because I, we don't have too much time, but... The War on Terror and the Arab Spring. After decades of destabilization efforts by the US and the Middle East, the Wahhabist terrorist organization Al-Qaeda, which was a group in the CIA-backed Mujahideen to overthrow the sour revolutionary government in Afghanistan, committed the September 11th attacks in 2001. Though Al-Qaeda had direct ties to the Saudi kingdom, no war broke out between the U.S. and its ally. Instead, the U.S. began campaigns in Afghanistan, which was under the control of the Taliban, another group in the CIA-backed Mujahideen. The War on Terror, as it was dubbed, was declared on what President Bush called the axes of evil, the non-alignment movement. The wars which spread into Syria as a civil war, the ongoing Yemeni crisis, the Arab Spring, which toppled leaders like Libya's Muammar Gaddafi, etc., has led to a cost of upward of $21 trillion and estimated lives lost at over a million. And I should say, after the toppling of Gaddafi's government, Libya is essentially uh, open to slave trade, so so much for democracy. Saudi Arabia and its shift toward China and Russia. Though Saudi Arabia has long been a loyal ally to the U.S., Israel, and the NATO European states, as of 2022, developments 
that have seemingly come from left field are threatening the U.S. hold on the unipolar rules-based order. As of March 2022, the Saudi government has made strides toward the Russian-China alignment by accepting trade deals in the Chinese yuan. Saudi Arabia, along with Turkey, Egypt, and the United Arab Emirates, have expressed interest in joining the economic cooperation bloc called BRICS for Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. I do have to say with Saudi Arabia, back in August, Biden asked Saudi Arabia to increase its uh, oil production to make up the deficit after uh, putting uh, sanctions on Russian oil. And as a result, Saudi Arabia not only said no, but they cut their oil production to the West in half. So it's interesting. They're not, you know, that we've been enemies, but there's some weird developments going on. All right, we'll go to our next round of uh, discussion. I wanna say real quick on Saudi Arabia and their war in Yemen. Typically, I've seen that that's a conflict that ends up forgotten by a lot of people at all different political ideologies. What's happening there is basically a genocide. I mean, they with U.S. help uh, and U.S. arms, uh, they do things like airstrike school buses full of children and airstrike hospitals. And it's interesting to note there's actually a restaurant here in Eugene that had a Pray for Ukraine sign up. And I called them and said, why don't you put up a flag of Yemen because of the war that's happening there? And they said it wasn't important enough and it was too complicated. So it goes to show you the kind of favor that a fascist state like Ukraine can get while a state like Yemen uh, gets torn to shreds. And also it's interesting to note that Yemen used to be a socialist state as well. Yeah, I just want to give a little more clarification toward the political repression of uh, communists in Iran. So again, communists were part of the revolution against the Shah in 1979. And there's a battle at this time between um, the Shah under Khomeini versus the Tude Party. Um, The left wasn't unified under the Tude Party, though. You had Maoists who were trying to overthrow the government. And you also had this weird group called uh, the Mujahideen Akulk which um, was basically a group that claimed to be um, Maoist, but at the same time, their leader was supposedly Jesus Christ. So it was kind of reminiscent of uh, the Taiping Rebellion, which also had like a leader who had socialistic aspirations, but also claimed to be a religious figure. Uh, the Mujahideen, the Kulk, did, did a major terrorist attack on the Iranian parliament. And this um, the current leader of Iran, Khamenei, His, I believe his right or left arm is like permanently disabled because he was scarred in that attack. And this attack killed like nine Iranian uh, Congress people. It was like, imagine January 6th, but like a hundred times worse. And basically with with the Mujahideen Akulk, as well as various other um, Kurdish separatist groups that Saddam Hussein was funding, this gave the Islamists kind of the upper hand and more legitimacy as the left was seen as undermining the revolution in Iran and this led to political repression in Iran against communists. Um, but then again, Iran is still a revolutionary society. They have the besiege council, which kind of is a way is a form, although it's not the same thing. It is kind of a local council for, to enforce the Islamic revolution. Um, and it's not Saudi Arabia. You have women in the Iranian army, you have uh, women in higher education. It's it's very much a society that's anti-imperialist, but it's not Marxist. All right. Thank you, comrade. I just wanted to say to the comrade, good call on calling out the Mujahideen Akhalq. That's just a crazy one. So I just wanted to say on Iran, basically, my relation to it is very complicated because the way in which they treat workers in that country is not very good. Let's just be honest, it's not very good. However, we have to look at them dialectically. And with a guy like Khamenei, I mean, there's things about him that he does say that are just true. And, you know, in his vision, there's some things about it that are just objectively true about the way in which U.S. imperialism shows itself. And we should just kind of remember that. That's all I'm going to say. Thank you. All right. Thank you, comrade. 
Thank you. Um, so first off, I want to mention another imperialist uh, conflict that has been supported by the U.S., which is um, Morocco's occupation of Western Sahara, uh, which the PCUSA, we sent some representatives, uh, one of which is in this call, to go and meet with the Polisario Front and learn some more about what's going on there and express our solidarity with them. Uh, that is another conflict that I think warrants attention is the conflict going on there. And something that you had said about the restaurant with the Ukraine flag, but they wouldn't put up anything for Yemen, uh, that brought up something that I think is also worth mentioning. Uh, be wary of what I like to call coffee mug anti-imperialists. Essentially, people whose anti-imperialism can be summed up in a slogan you'd see on a coffee mug, and it is whatever war the U.S. media is saying to oppose at any given time. Uh, so, you know, we so it's people who say that Russia is the imperialist aggressor in Ukraine, or they'll say the same thing for any number of conflicts where they'll call the other guy the imperialist when it's actually the U.S. being imperialist. And so I call them coffee mug anti-imperialists. And so basically anyone who doesn't really seem to have a well-fleshed out understanding of imperialism and will reduce any non-popular conflict to, oh, well, it's complicated. Like they'll say that about Israel and Palestine. Oh, well, it's complicated. Um, just be cautious of them because they'll call themselves anti-imperialists, but they're wolves in sheep's clothing. Thank you. Thank you, comrade. And I also want to add that uh, nothing is too complicated to figure out. And so when people say, oh, it's complicated. All right, look at it more. Uh, let's figure out what's going on here. And with dialectical materialism, uh, we can definitely do that. Can you hear me? I think uh, when when we have to see the world uh, from a Marxist-Lenin's uh, point of view, we have to also appreciate the role of the national liberation movement, which were not led by uh, communist parties, but progressive anti-imperialist forces like Gamal Abdel Nasser, the movement in uh, uh, Yemen against the... Uh, the British Empire, the Indian resistance against the British Empire in the 19th century, including the United States of America, was under the British Empire. So we supported the movement by George Washington as a patriotic movement to emancipate the country from British colonialism. So that was progressive. Also, the civil war in North America was supported by Karl Marx himself because I think those movements overall would contribute to the long-term uh, victory of the proletariat on a global plane. So we have to make a relative appreciation of those movements in the general weakening of uh, international uh, capitalism or state monopoly capitalism in this age. So we have to be very realistic and dialectical, as uh, Comrade Angelo always indicates. So the relative appreciation of the Iran movement is good, it's positive against uh, imperialism, but this is not a communist movement, it's not a Marxist-Leninist movement. Yeah, the People's School is separate from the Party of Communist USA, but we're free to speak about the Party of Com Communist USA here. And the Party of Com Communist USA International Department is working with and in communication with the Communist Party of Congo. And it's interesting because uh, much like Yemen or the two Koreas or what's going on with Iran. Uh, the whole Rwanda Tutsi Hutu thing is still going on from the 90s. And a bunch of uh, people from Rwanda crossed the border to the, the Democratic Republic of Congo uh, to escape the conflict. And then now uh, Rwanda, much like you know Ukraine or, or whatever, is being turned into like a base of US imperialists and um, a French imperialist uh, little base, and they're using the the people who went to Congo. They want to uh, annex eastern part of Congo, and there's a conflict going on there. So all around the world, we have these conflicts. That's why uh, it's important for us to coordinate in this country, although we have to be able to defend ourselves. All right. Thank you, comrade. We can go ahead and jump back to the presentation now. Okay. 
this is where I take over. Um, and I'm going to ask that we hold the discussion until the very end of the Latin American uh, slides because we're going to run out of time. So let's just jump into it now. Um, so this is just a brief history of American backed coups. When you think of uh, South America and Latin America, obviously America has a bit of uh, dabbling in that. So U.S. declared war on Spain in 1898 and captured the Philippines, Puerto Rico, and Cuba. The United States often used military intervention to force the small nations of Central America and the Caribbean to repay loans owed to banks in Europe or the United States. The United States occupied Cuba, the Dominican Republic, Nicaragua, Honduras, and Haiti on various occasions during the late 19th and early 20th century. Uh, the Panama Canal was finished in 1914. The U.S. also occupied Nicaragua from 1912 to 1931. If you look to the right there, you could see some things that happened in the 20th century and the 21st. There, were, there have been over 56 U.S. military interventions. Some of them have been successful. Some of them have not. Um, let's go to the next slide, please. So now Latin America in the 20th century, fascism neoliberalism and the Washington consensus. So in the 20th century, the U.S. has backed over 50 coups, as we saw in the last slide. For example, in 1973, um, on September 11th, uh, the Chilean president Salvador Allende was overthrown by a fascist-led CIA-backed coup that put in the dictator uh, Pinochet. And we have countries in Latin America were put into economic turmoil through American imperialism oil crisis and suppressing popular worker and socialist movements, which led to neoliberal policies through the IMF and free market capitalist ideology. You can think of like the um, Chicago, Chicago boys or something that went into uh, Chile after they overthrew Allende. Organization of American States um, was founded in 1948 to suppress Soviet alliances in Latin America. While communist movements had been suppressed by the U.S. and its fascist allies in Latin America from the early 2000s, there was a socialist-leaning Pink Tide uh, movement that criticized the policies of the U.S. and elected social democratic parties. Um, and now we'll go into the individual countries. We'll start, I believe, with um, Bolivia. When we think of Bolivia, we think of uh, what happened with Morales. Uh, so unions representing the, and I'm going to pronounce this incorrectly, but the Cocoloros or the coca growers of Morales' home region, uh, Cocobama, which was set up in, uh, which set up Mass, which is the uh, party of uh, Morales in 1998. So yeah, that was set up in 1998. And their aim was to get indigenous and union leaders elected to Congress. So Morales was elected in 2005. Immediately, Morales passed a law redistributing thousands of square miles of land deemed unproductive or illegally held to peasants. He placed the natural gas, oil, and telecommunications and electricity industries under state control. And he continually raised the minimum wage. So Bolivia under Morales has increased its per capita income by threefold and reduced Bolivia's Gini coefficient, which is just a fancy way to measure inequality by uh, 19%. Um, moving to the next slide, uh, some bad things happened in Bolivia. In 2019, Morales was forced to flee the country to Mexico after reactionary forces with ties to the American DOJ uh, enforced a coup on claims of voter fraud. That should sound familiar. Uh, the opposition Senator uh, Janine Inez proclaimed herself interim president. Uh, during the fa this fascist coup, there was violence against the organized indigenous people and coca plant growers. Uh, so there were some uh, bad things that happened, some massacres like the Senkenta and Sacaba massacres which murdered over 20 people and injured almost 200. But Morales and the Mas Party was so popular that due to social unrest and organizing, the Mas Party won the elections after the coup. So even though there was a coup, the Mas Party still won the elections. That kind of goes to tell you how hard it is to actually do voter fraud, like on a mass scale. So uh, while you still get claims of voter fraud, sometimes it's hard to do it. Um, to actually, you know, get the alignment that you want. So Morales is back in Bolivia as an active member in uh, his party. And I believe the fascist people that try to instigate that coup, like Inez, are in jail. So let's move on to Brazil. When we think of Brazil in recent events, we think of uh, Lula da Silva, who was president from 2003 to 2010 and created programs that lifted 20 million people out of poverty, programs to feed 
Educate and Employ Brazilian Citizens were created. Uh, since Lula has been out of power, uh, this is before he was reelected, unemployment has skyrocketed, poverty has increased, and Brazil has over 680,000 deaths due to the COVID pandemic. Uh, Lula's party, the Workers' Party, is a social democratic party. For the gains it made in Lula's first presidency, they were all dismantled or removed. Uh, USDOJ-backed anti-corruption campaign, I believe it was called the Lava Javo uh, Operation Car Wash campaign, to oust Lula and his workers' parties. Uh, that happened. Many WP members were sentenced to prison, which included Lula. So uh, moving on, uh, we know what happens after that. Lula couldn't run in 2017 against J.R. Bolsonaro, despite his popularity due to the charges of corruption led by Brazil and American judicial influences. He was later exonerated from this. Lula won against Bolsonaro in the 2022 election, but he has strengthened his relationships with the U.S. and does not appear to be pushing against the U.S. and NATO's involvement in Ukraine. Uh, maybe we'll speak about that in a moment because some things recently have uh, developed with that. On uh, January 8, 2023, following the defeat of the then President Bolsonaro and after Lula was inaugurated, a mob of Bolsonaro's supporters attacked Brazil's federal uh, government buildings in the capital, Brasilia. So this uh, mob invaded and vandalized many government buildings, including the presidential palace. So this might sound familiar to you. It's, it's like two days from what we know as January 6th. Now let's move to Cuba. This is a little bit more promising. After the fall of the Soviet Union in the 90s, Cuba suffered from a lack of resources due to the embargo caused by the U.S. Uh, Cuba maintains a very democratic, communist-run government with a progressive constitution. The new code enacts sweeping advances in the rights of women, LGBTQ people, children, elderly people, and people with disabilities. Cuba and the Communist Party of Cuba has pushed solidarity, anti-imperialist movements in Latin America and all around the world. Coup attempts um, through color revolutions have all failed. Uh, Russia and Cuba both recognize their mutual solidarity against American imperialism and talks to increase the military spending and even putting a military base, a Russian military base in Cuba. On Thank the you. island. Yeah, on the island. Thank you. Okay, so now Venezuela, real quick. This does not do service to uh, Venezuela, but we have to move on. So the election of uh, Hugo Chavez in 1999 marked a churn for Venezuela against American hegemony and IMF uh, austerity. So they nationalized oil and that created uh, antagonism with the US. Uh, America failed attempts to overthrow government under Maduro. So this is after Chavez, once again, under claims of voter fraud. And there was also a military operation in 2019 that failed. Uh, US sanctions continue to hurt Venezuela's economy. Uh, Venezuela has stood in favor of Russia's war in Ukraine. Venezuela is one of Cuba's strongest allies, supplying the Cuban people and government with petroleum in exchange for medical resources and doctors. So Haiti. Haiti is the country has gone from being forced into debt after winning their independence in 1804, that was a long time ago, from its French colonizers, to American soldiers suppressing labor strikes in order to keep the country under American hegemonic rule. Haiti is one of, if not the most exploited country from imperialism. In 1986, Haiti had a people's uprising, but wasn't able to accomplish much in governmental leadership due to the constant imperialist pressure in crippling debt. Since the United States, the OSA and the UN have put corrupt puppet dictators in place against the interests of the country's people. An example would be the former President Moise, who was assassinated in 2021. Uh, so general strikes and working power in 2021 and 2022 have forced imperialism harder on the Haitian people. So there have been like right-wing parliamentary gangs that have been backed by Western capital, and those were created to enforce workers into those conditions. So Haiti continues dealing with increasing parliamentary groups funded by imperialist capital or, or these gang, uh, quote unquote, violence as another cholera outbreak, as well as the COVID um, pandemic happened. Well, uh, the cholera outbreak left uh, 70,000 hospitalized. That was back in October, 2022. So real quick, things have happened in some other places. Uh, obviously, we got a lot to talk about in Latin America. So Colombia, uh, the incoming president, Gustavo uh, Petro, and he's no longer incoming, said that Colombia will stop granting new license for oil um, exploration and will ban fracking projects and even 
though the oil industry makes up almost 50% of the nation's legal exports. Uh, he plans to finance social spending with a $10 billion a year tax reform that would boost taxes on the rich and do away with corporate tax breaks. Real quick on Ecuador, uh, they, had a, uh, they have a right-wing president, Lazo, who was elected in 2021. Uh, national strikes uh, began in July 22 against Lazo's austerity measures. I think he's also into some sort of cryptocurrency that doesn't make any sense. Um, also Peru, in December 7th, 2022, democratically elected Peruvian president Pedro Castillo issued a decree dissolving the Republic's Congress, uh, held by a right-wing majority, along with calling to a draft a new constitution. So President Castillo was arrested by the authorities on charges of inciting rebellion and conspiracy and promptly impeached from office. And then the vice president was sworn in December 8, 2022, and she remains the president while Castillo remains in jail. So how about imperialism? Today, the U.S. has over 76 bases in Latin America and a strong Air Force, Marine, and CIA agents like in Guantanamo Bay. Yet America has failed in its efforts to suppress leftist movements like we have what we mentioned about Bolivia, Venezuela, and Cuba. The Biden administration tries to influence South America through other means, uh, continuing the Trump administration's policies like recognizing an alt-president in Venezuela, chastising Bolivia for trying to hold those responsible for the recent coup and repression legally accountable. Last two slides, but uh, how Latin America is fighting back. So we mentioned BRICS. There's also the Bolivarian Alliance for People of Or America, ALBA. These are some examples of economic alliances that are pushing against American neoliberal hegemony. Russia has supplied an alternative to military arming for a lot of Latin American countries, creating opposition and preventing the U.S. from its military coups. China has created economic relationships with Latin America countries as well. Okay, last slide. Um, so just a little bit about ALBA. It's quite fascinating, but it was founded initially by Cuba and Venezuela in 2004. It is associated with socialist and social democratic governments wishing to consolidate regional economic integration based on a vision of welfare, bartering, and mutual economic aid. ALBA was aimed at the exchange of medical and educational resources in petroleum between the two states. Cuba dispatches doctors for Venezuelan petroleum. Um, now there are 10 members that are in ALBA. I won't read them all off, but there they are. And then uh, if you're familiar with Teleser, that was actually founded by um, ALBA. And then Ecuador and Honduras have left um, after the right-wing governments, no surprise, came into power. Okay, and I think now we could do discussions. All right, thank you. Uh, so first off, I want to thank the comrades from the Peace and Solidarity Commission. This was a fantastic class. Um, it was a great introductory class to the topic. Uh, there is obviously so much more to go over, but y'all did a great job introducing it. Um, what I really wanted to expand on, though, was the Chicago Boys because I think that that's an important way to look at the development of uh, neocolonialism by the U.S. So just for a quick timeline of events, and all of this is relevant. In 1944, we had the Bretton Woods Conference, which was really when the IMF and World Bank were established. In 1949, Harry Truman, in his inaugural speech, established a, a multi-point program, the most important of which was the point four program, which was his plan for assisting developing nations across the world. Part of that was the Chile project. Uh, so the Chile project was when a bunch of uh, Chilean economists were trained in the Chicago University, along with a corollary school within Chile. And they were essentially trained on a form of proto-Reaganomics, was basically what they were taught. And actually, the Chicago boys and the policies that they helped implement within Chile were an inspiration to Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher. That's how, that's how terrible they were. They inspired both of those people. Um, and so looking at the development of the Chicago Boys and looking at the way that the U.S. was instigating this coup as early as the 1950s is really a good case study in the way that neocolonialism operates and the way that it works. Um, and it's also an important lesson to remember that our enemy doesn't just have one-year plans. They don't just have five-year plans. They have 10-year, 20-year, 100-year plans. They work in scales of decades, and so we need to uh, keep that in mind while we're analyzing anything.
basically. Thank you. Yeah, I just wanted to say on Haiti, as soon as they got their independence, the French basically tied their arms and said, now you owe us a debt for this. And they've been paying since then. It's really a freaking tragedy. Thank you. Great class tonight. I just wanted to mention a case that kind of ties together anti-imperialism and Iran and Venezuela. There's a diplomat slash businessman who's basically been kidnapped by the USA named Alex Saab, S-A-A-B. And he was basically kidnapped in his plane for refueling and arrested for violation of U.S. sanctions with Iran, even though he's a Venezuelan citizen. So look into that if you haven't, because it ties a lot of this together, in my opinion. All right. Thank you, comrade. So I'd like to add on, this isn't my whole point, but I'd just like to add on that Haiti isn't the only country that France has done that to. It's asking for reparations for uh, declaring independence. I think France has done that for all of their colonies, especially uh, like Algeria and Morocco and such. So it, it, it isn't the first time they've done this. Secondly, I'd like to point out that uh, in Chile, for instance, Chile is a great example as to why uh, we should be careful as to who's in our government. Because when Allende was elected, Pinochet was his right-hand man. Like, like he was with Allende basically wherever he went. And in three years later, Bakui saw it take power. It's a, it's a case study as to why we can't be too passive and that the revolution doesn't stop when once we're in the state it keeps going and we need to make sure that when when we are up there that we need to be careful with who is by our side and make sure that whoever is with us is with us and is following the party line all right thank you comrade we have to be very careful about these recent people that were elected in latin america that claim to be left the guy in colombia he is very close to the United States. Borak, I've talked about him before. He comes out of the student movement, not the trade union movement. And he his failures to implement the Constitution um, due to a focus on identity politics within Latin America really have hurt the Chilean left massively. Um, our comrades within uh, the communist, uh, I believe it's the Communist Party of Chile worker, or it's the more radical one. Proletarian. Proletarian action. Yes, thank you, comrade. We have to be very careful about these new, new so-called left-wing leaders within Latin America. Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, those are solid. Those are our comrades. But these new batch of leaders who are pro-U.S. imperialism and who claim to be left-wing, they're not our friends or our allies, comrades. Yes, comrade, uh, you know, they mentioned Pinochet, Allende and all this. Uh, you know, the whole deal is if you're a real communist organization or a real uh, popular revolution, not fake, like um, Max mentioned in Chile and, and in Colombia and in, um, I forgot. Okay, so the first thing you got to do is make sure that the military and the police is yours. You cannot use the old ones. You got to put new ones, your own. That's what Chavez did in 1992, 98, okay, when he came to power. And uh, that's why they're still around, Maduro, right? Uh, Cuba, of course, we know. So uh, Nicaragua as well, I believe. So that's the main thing, you know, uh, like uh, that's why Evo Morales fell because he was overthrown by a military of his own, you know, because he kept the old ones. And the same thing happened in other countries, I think in Peru at one time, yeah, but they came back. Anyway, uh, that's very important. It's like uh, what Lenin said, you know, the state, the bourgeois state, you cannot use as it is. You gotta build your own state. By state, we mean police and military. All right, thank you, comrade. And I wanted to say uh, two things uh, before we go ahead and wrap up tonight. Uh, the first one is on Bolivia. It's very interesting to note that one of the uh, modern robber barons of, of the United States, Elon Musk, actually posted then deleted a tweet uh, when the coup had happened in Bolivia that said something along the lines of 
uh, we coup whoever we want to coup. Uh, so it, that that was a, a very uh, shocking admittance. But it, I mean, we all know that that is true to begin with. And then the other thing that I want to say is I think that at some point we need to have a class on uh, the history of U.S. imperialism and its origins, because I really think that one of the times when U.S. imperialism really gets on the world stage is with the Spanish-American War uh, and then the subsequent Philippine-American War, Banana Wars etc. Because Latin America is integral to the history of U.S. imperialism. Uh, it's not a fringe zone uh, for us. Ever since the Monroe Doctrine, which basically said that uh, Latin America was our backyard and we wanted to have our influence in it rather than the European powers, uh, we've tried everything to try to expand down into Latin America. Uh, there was a imperialist in the 19th century in America, and I can't remember his name, it was like Henry Seward or something, that actually thought that at some point in the future, the United States would have Colombia as a state of the United States. Nice. And so, comrade did correct me, William uh, Seward. Uh, so, Latin America is very integral to the history of U.S. imperialism, and the islands that we got after the Spanish-American War really allowed us to open up conflicts later on in the Pacific, such as Korea, Vietnam, the ongoing aggression against China over Taiwan, etc. So I just wanted to add that in there. And thank you all for coming tonight. Thank you very much. Thank you for watching this full-length class from the People's School for Marxist-Leninist Studies. For more information or to join our free classes, visit our website, check out our YouTube, Listen to our streams on Spotify and chat with us on Reddit. <laughs>